What's up, everybody? It's Austin Rivers from Off Guard, and I've got some exciting news. Off Guard, hosted by me and my guy, Pasha Hagigi, is officially moving to our own podcast feed. We are now dropping two shows every week. Me and Pasha go way back and talk so much hoops already that we figured it was time to fire up the mics and let you in on these conversations. Every week, Pasha and myself will hit on the biggest stories happening around the league. Tap into the show twice a week on our new Off Guard feed on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibly listed at indeed.com slash plain. Just go to indeed.com slash plain right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Canva. Better presentations are possible. You just need Canva presentations. With it, you can easily and quickly make stunning slides. All you have to do is start with one of Canva's professionally designed templates or generate slides with AI. Then add graphs, charts, and more from the massive media library, and you're done. It's that simple. I always think that the best use of AI in work is it does the thing that you naturally aren't very good at. And personally, one thing I'm really terrible at is making visual presentations. I'm not very visually inclined. I'm not good at picking out you know, photographs or abstract conceptual images to go with ideas I'm trying to put forward in presentations. So it's kind of nice to have an AI-powered tool that can help me make these presentations in literally seconds. Nail your next work presentation with Canva presentations at canva.com, designed for work. Today is a deep dive into the U.S. housing market, which begins with a very specific question. Should you look to rent or buy your next home? So let me back up here. Two years ago, in the spring of 2021, a family member of mine was looking to buy a house in Southern California. She asked me for some advice on the housing market, and I said, well, I'm not really sure about the housing market in SoCal. I'm not a real estate agent. To which she said, well, you're a journalist. Maybe go do a journalism and call some people and figure this out for me. So I did some reporting and came to the conclusion that the U.S. housing market in L.A. and San Diego and really nationwide was just about as surreal as it has ever been. Half of the houses listed nationwide in April 2021 were sold in less than half a week. In Bethesda, Maryland, a suburb of D.C., one resident included in her written offer to buy a house a pledge to name her firstborn child after the seller, and she did not get the house. So surely, I wrote, this was evidence of peak ridiculousness. But I was wrong. I was wrong. Sorry, Kara. 2021 was not peak ridiculousness when it came to housing prices. In fact, home prices have now increased 40% since the start of the pandemic in 2020. A 40% appreciation is what we saw over the entire previous decade from 2010 to 2020. And as a result, as The Atlantic's Annie Lowry has written, a lot of young people today, especially in high-income areas, Los Angeles, San Francisco, D.C., New York, feel like the housing market is completely closed off to them for the foreseeable future. And this matters 
broadly because expensive housing shapes where people live, what jobs they take, when they start families, if they start families. Housing is never just about houses. Housing is about everything. And it is arguable that when it comes to housing, many people should rethink everything they know or think they know about ownership. On The Daily Podcast earlier this week, host Michael Barbaro asked The New York Times writer David Leonhardt whether young people should just give up entirely on the prospect of buying a house. Here was their exchange. So if you're somebody thinking about buying a home right now, should you just pretty much give up on the idea? Give up on the idea that has been seen as a ticket to adulthood and a reliable path to creating wealth and just accept that you're going to be a renter? Yes. For most people, the answer is yes. You should give up on the idea. You shouldn't feel bad about it. Renting has this... David made some excellent points after this. In America, he said, we're told that renters are setting their money on fire when they hand it over to a landlord. Housing, on the other hand, we're told, is a solid investment. And sometimes it is. But in the short term, it's a considerable cost burden compared to renting. Of course, there's the down payment. But then there's the broker's fee, which is significantly higher in the U.S. than other countries, about 6% of the total home price on average in the U.S. versus just 2% in Australia and Britain. And then there's the opportunity cost of all that money. Because for every $10,000 that you put into a down payment that you essentially stick into the walls of your new home, that's $10,000 you're not putting somewhere else. Say, into the stock market, which, by the way, has historically outperformed real estate. And you add all that up, all of this up, and you add it to historically high home prices and historically low availability, which we have today, and relatively elevated mortgage rates, and you get what Mark Zandi, today's guest, the chief economist of Moody's Analytics, calls a particularly, uniquely, unusually bad housing market for buyers. Today's guest is Mark Zandi. We talk about the brief history of how housing went so berserk in America and why high mortgage rates are not reducing average home prices. But we also talk about the subtle ways in which this story is already changing at the margins. Mortgage rates are already coming down just a bit. Building material demand is perking up. Across the country, so-called yimbies who support urban housing construction are notching winds, large and small. Buying a house in America absolutely sucks right now. We'll talk about why, but we'll also talk about why the worst is probably, hopefully, mercifully behind us. I'm Derek Thompson. This is Plain English. Mark Zandi, welcome back to the show. It's good to be back. Thank you. So 
I think what I would like to do here is have you start us off by offering a kind of thesis statement for this episode uh, and to answer the big question on my mind and on lots of people's minds. And then after you answer that question, we'll back up and do a brief history of the housing market and how we got to this insane place. So the question of the moment for me here is, if the typical person listening to this show is at a moment in their life where they're thinking, I need a new place, should I buy or should I rent? When I click into Zillow, should I press the rent tab or the buy tab? What's your advice for them? Is this a decent moment for most people to think about buying a home? Tough time to buy a home. I'd be patient. Prices are high. Mortgage rates are high. There isn't a lot to choose from. So, you know, at the current point in time, buying is difficult. Renting is, I think, probably for most people, the the best route, at least for the foreseeable future. So, I mean... Relative to other years in the 21st century, which has not exactly been a golden century for housing in America, is this a particularly bad time to look to buy? Particularly, uh, very bad, uh, unusually bad. I mean, in, uh, house prices have gone skyward uh, since uh, even before the pandemic, but obviously since the pandemic hit for lots of different reasons that we'll, I'm sure, discuss. Mortgage rates have surged. Uh, you know, they come back in uh, a little bit in in recent days, couple weeks, but they're still very, very high. And uh, people just aren't selling their homes for very reasons that are very idiosyncratic to the current point in time. So there's just nothing to choose from. I mean, if you wanted to buy a home, you know, to find one that's consistent with your needs is pretty tough. So yeah, this is a, a very unique, unusual period in our uh, housing history. I want to speed through some chronology to get us started because I do think it's useful to understand the history of how we got to here, uh, the history of sort of the U.S. housing market uh, in the 21st century, which, you know, in my mind, to understand this moment, you really do have to go back to the Great Recession and 2007, 2008. So you go back to 2007, 2008, and I'm going to speed through this and then give you a chance to sort of edit my brief history. You have the famous uh, financial crisis, the housing market in the U.S. crashes. Construction remains in a depression for a decade. We build fewer homes per capita in the 2010s than any decade on record. The market slowly starts to normalize in the late 20-teens under the Trump administration. Interest rates are still low. Construction is on the mend. The millennial generation is rounding into its 30s. That's creating a lot of demand pressure that's driving up housing prices. Uh, It's the prime home buying years for this large millennial generation. And then bam, right as things are normalizing, we get a pandemic. And the pandemic does a bunch of things. It sends the housing market into a frenzy. All these people with means uh, feel cabin fever. And to cure their cabin fever, they want to buy bigger homes. Uh, Maybe they want to buy a house with an extra room for remote work. You see prices rise in the suburbs and exurbs around rich metros. Meanwhile, the construction market on the supply side is socked with all of these shutdowns and snags. So demand for bigger houses soars in the face of decades of supply constraints. And surging demand times constrained supply always equals higher prices. So prices skyrocket through and after the sort of peak pandemic years. And then to top everything off, the end of the pandemic economy, the lockdowns are over, people are going back to restaurants and movie theaters and everything. Uh, That creates an inflation crisis which the Fed responds to by jacking up interest rates. Higher interest rates means higher mortgages. Higher mortgages means the cost of buying a house rises. And now we seem to have like the worst of all possible worlds. We still have the sky high prices from the pandemic and pre-pandemic years, but now we also have sky high mortgage interest rates. So the two worst things you could possibly look at if you're sort of an average person looking to buy a house. Uh, 
what part of this sort of brief rushed through history of the last sort of 15 years leading us up to the 2023 housing market do you think I might have uh, left out or misconstrued? Uh, you did a great job. That was great. Uh, I think you nailed it. Um, I mean, I, I'm an economist. So I'll quibble about everything you just said <laughs> you know, on the margin. But but uh, I thought you got the narrative uh, you know, just right. I mean, it did begin with the financial crisis back a little over a decade ago. That was a, that was a housing crash. That was at the center of that crisis. Remember back to subprime mortgage, all the foreclosures. There was vast overbuilding, you know, during that period of time, and because of the collapse, uh, it just wiped out uh, so much, uh, a lot of home builders and all the infrastructure to build. Um, and you know, the, people don't recognize, but the home building industry is a very fragmented business. You know, you've got some big publicly traded builders, but you got a lot of smaller builders. Uh, that are you know on the margin financially and they got wiped out uh and so just the infrastructure to build wasn't there the other thing that happened was the fixed cost to build increased during that period because because of the collapse in, in prices uh local governments couldn't generate property tax revenue you know they those revenues are based on the the value of the housing but the, the housing collapsed so lo localities uh, raised permitting fees and other costs. And then there was significant zoning restrictions that have gotten even more restrictive over the time. And uh, so the if you're a builder, you, you know, you got to cover those fixed costs. And the way you do that is you build bigger homes. You build, you know, homes that you can sell to wealthier, higher income households at higher margins. And they forgot about the entry level homes, you know, the folk, the kind of homes that people buy when they first get into the the single family housing market, the first time home buyers. And so that's where the sh the shortage of homes has been particularly acute. And that's where, where prices have been have risen most significantly and and where the affordability issues at this point in time are are highest. But I, I, I you know I can go on to each aspect of your narrative and we can discuss it, but you know, you're you're absolutely right. The the you know the uh, genesis for this mess we're in began over well over a decade ago. I, I want to drill down just one level deeper into what you just said, which is that this is a part that I left out of my brief history, and it's something that's left out of a lot of critiques of the housing market, which is that the average new home is significantly larger than the average house that was being built in, say, the 1970s, 1980s, 1990s. Average homes are much bigger than they used to be. You suggested that one aspect of this is that fixed costs are higher. The, the permitting is more expensive, zoning is more restrictive. So if you're going to start to build a house, if you're gonna have a housing start, you might as well build a bigger house that you can sell for more money in order to cover all of these high fixed costs. That's a part of it. What else is driving the increase in the average size of new homes? Which again, to our point here, it's important that houses are getting bigger because bigger houses are more expensive and more expensive houses make it further out of reach for someone who's sort of middle, low income, which means you have this decline of sort of starter houses in America. What else is driving this sort of housing inflation? That is the size, not just the price. Yeah, and just a kind of factual correction there. I mean, uh, homes have gotten a lot bigger compared to 20, 30, 40 years ago, no doubt about it, but they've come in a, a bit since uh, kind of the McMansion period. I mean, you know, before the financial crisis, we were putting up really big homes. Uh, you know, this come in a little bit. It's just the distribution of the kind of homes that are being con constructed have have shifted up in, in general. We're just not producing nearly as many kind of smaller homes, entry level homes, that kind of thing. And you know, there's lots of reasons. I, I think I'll point out 
one additional, and that's just, you know, the income and wealth distribution has become more skewed, right, over time. And, you know, if you go back uh, since the early 1980s, really, for lots of other, you know, reasons, uh, the uh, wealth of the population, the income that we earn is become increasingly more top-heavy. Uh, you know, the share going to the folks in the po- top part of the distribution, top 10%, top 20%, top third, has increased quite significantly. And so, you know, those folks have more income, more wealth, and they invest in everything, everything, stocks, bonds, crypto, gold, whatever, and and housing, and housing. So people, you know, put more into housing. So it's interesting. You can see you got a lot of a single person, two person households out there with a lot of house. I mean, a lot of square footage. And that's been, that's happened to, you know, over uh, you know, the last uh, couple, three decades and, and I think uh, one key reason is this the skewing of the wealth and income distribution. Let's talk about this particular moment. And one of the big mysteries to me and to a lot of people looking for a home is why, even with sky-high mortgage interest rates, at least relative to the rest of the 21st century, why haven't prices come down? What's your explanation for why higher rates have not reduced prices more significantly? Yeah, well, it it does go back to that shortage. There's just not uh, a lot of homes out there that are vacant. I mean, the uh, that the uh, that you know, for example, the uh, homeowner vacancy rate—that's the uh, the percent of homes out there for sale uh, that are vacant—is at a record low uh, in falling. Uh, we've seen some pick up in the rental vacancy rate very recently. It's low by historical standards, but it's picked up a little bit, but mostly at the high, again, back to the high end of the multifamily market. You know, all those big multifamily apartment towers that are going up, you know, my hometown of Philly or in DC or in Chicago or in Seattle, that part of the market, we're getting supply and rent rents are, are soft. But at the lower end of the market, the kind of the, what I call the, you have to rent because you, you can't afford to buy that part of the market, you know, vacancy rates are extraordinarily low. So, you know, the most fundamental reason here for the high house prices is there's just no homes. You know, you just have no supply. The other thing that's going on, and this is particularly important in the low end of the market, again, where the price increases have been most acute uh, and the affordability issues most severe, is the so-called lock-in effect. You know, this is uh, during the uh, after the financial crisis up until the, mostly to the pandemic, uh, we lived in a world of very low interest rates, again, for lots of different reasons. Uh, and of course, when the pandemic hit, the economy was in a free fall and mortgage rates got down to record lows. I mean, uh, almost any person I talk to these days has a mortgage sitting at, you know, two and three quarters percent, three, three and three quarters. And uh, the the typical homeowner out there with a mortgage has a has a mortgage rate of three and a half percent. So okay, so if you have a three and a half percent mortgage, and mortgage rates are seven, which is where they are roughly today, you know that doesn't make a whole lot of economic sense because you you know you sell your home, you extinguish the mortgage at three and a half, go buy another home, get a mortgage at seven, your monthly mortgage payment is just going to sky skyrocket. You know, there it, it's a, a little more nuanced than that because you know if you're not selling, you're not buying, but at the low end of the market. You know, you are severely restricting the uh, supply because of the so-called lock-in effect, and that's where you've seen these big price increases. So it's not one thing, but a couple of things have come together that have caused and conspired to keep uh, prices up. Just one other quick point: people don't like to cut price. You know, once you see as your price 
you, you know, everyone looks at Zillow. If you're a homeowner, I'm sure, pretty sure I, I look at Zillow. You know, there's, and it's a, it's, it's actually a pretty good measure of valuation. It's gotten better over time. And you, you watch that and you get in your mind, oh, my home is worth whatever that is. And you're going to be very reluctant to sell it at less than that, no matter what's going on. Uh, you will eventually do so. And I, if I, we, well, we should talk about the future, but I do think people are, for, because of life events, are going to have to start selling. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, you don't, you know, people have this uh, resistance to, you know, uh, lowering their price. Uh, you know, the kind of the so-called reservation price they have in their mind. Yeah, fewer new homes coming online, plus fewer existing homes being put up for sale, as you said, because of uh, rate lock-in. And it all adds up to fewer homes listed for sale. And in fact, I was playing around with uh, with Fred's statistics this morning, and it looks like, at least according to Fred, like existing home sales as a share of the population are lower than just about any month on record I could find. And that would explain why in the uh, University of Michigan Consumer Survey, uh, when you ask consumers about buying conditions for homes, uh, if anyone wants to check this out, this is chart 41 on the University of Michigan Consumer Survey, buying conditions for homes are worse now than basically any year since the recession of the 1980s. So if you are 40 years old, at least according to survey data, this is the worst market for home buying in your lifetime. Now, that's that's survey data. That's people's sentiment, not necessarily any uh, hard statistic from the market. Do you think that's a reasonable reflection of the market right now? I mean, d- does this feel to you, when you add everything together, like the worst market for buying a home in 40 years? Well, first let me say I'm really impressed. Your listeners know what Fred is. I'm just uh, Fred. Oh yeah, <laughs> the, this, the, this, Fred is the. Uh, I, I hope some of them do. Yeah, Fred is the. Um, yeah, yeah, that's pretty cool. You guys are pretty wonky. I okay. think we're pretty wonky over here. Yeah, Fred for uh, Fred. If you just guys, you can Google Fred if you want. Um, F R E D. Uh, it's an acronym. Uh, it's the Federal Reserve uh, St. Louis Fed's uh, database, searchable database of economic statistics. And if you want to just look up just about any. Uh, series, any uh, statistical series to create a graph of any of the most significant economic statistics you can think of, you know, in the labor market, in the housing market, uh, in prices and inflation, go to Fred uh, and it'll whip up a graph for you super quick. So yeah, Fred, uh, somewhat wonky, um, but certainly a mainstay of my uh, of my journalistic life. Yeah, I'd say big time wonky. Uh, uh, well, to answer your question about the housing market, yeah, it's it's bad. Uh, in terms of sales in particular, uh, home sales, when I think of housing, people say, how's the housing market doing? Well, it's demand, supply, and price. In terms of demand, I mean, how many homes are, are transacting? It's it's about as bad as it gets. Uh, you know, very, very uh, low. Uh, w- one quick uh, other point, I mean, uh, which I think is relevant. Um, if you look at n- new home sales, uh, th- they're down, but they're not down nearly as much as existing home sales. And that goes to the fact that home builders have been aggressive. They have actually cut price. You know, existing buyers they're not they're not cutting their price. They haven't at least not so far. But new home buyer, new home sellers, the the home builders, they have. And you know, you have these interest rate buy downs, and they have other different ways of of getting that effective price down. In fact, uh, by my calculation, the effective price of a new home has actually fallen about ten percent from its peak. So you know that you know that's helped keep new home sales from completely collapsing. They've kind of held held in there reasonably well. But existing sales, no, they're they're rock bottom, they're about as low as they get. 
And that makes sense, that the builders would cut their price because they're sitting on inventory that isn't making them any money. Whereas if you're living in a house uh, that you're, especially if you're paying a low mortgage rate on it, why would you accelerate your sale? Uh, why would you cut the, the, the sale price by you know, $50,000, $100,000 if you don't have to move? Uh, and this is helping to create this lock-in effect you've described. There's one more wrinkle that I want to add to this picture, um, which relates to a phenomenon that the economist Nick Bloom has called the donut effect. That is, if you look at certain metros, say San Francisco, Washington, D.C., Philly, where you live, expensive neighborhoods in the downtown urban cores have actually seen prices grow much less than the cheaper suburban neighborhoods on the outskirts of cities. And you can go all the way back to the pandemic and say this is all about the fact that people were feeling cabin fever during the pandemic. They wanted to get out. They wanted another room for remote work. They wanted to spread out, have a lawn, have a pool. And so they left the urban core and moved out to the suburbs. It's This phenomenon still seems to be happening now, even if at a slower rate. And to my mind, the reason it adds to this overall picture is that it makes affordability harder. Tell me if you disagree with this. I mean, if if the ch- if the formerly cheaper parts of metros are getting expensive faster than the already expensive urban cores, that means that overall affordability is vanishing if you're a sort of lower middle income consumer. Does that make sense? Yeah, uh, although I'd say that dynamic is not nearly as prevalent as it was a year, two, three years ago. I mean, if you look at migration flows, we 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 can look at we get all the credit files in the country anonymized, and I can see address changes. You know, this person moving from here to there, that kind of thing, and I can see exactly how many people are moving from the urban cores out to the suburban ring or the exurbs or rural areas. It's still a bit elevated compared to pre-pandemic, but I'd say just a bit. You know, it's come in quite a bit, and in in many markets, it's completely normalized. So that dynamic is not nearly as prevalent. But I do think you're right. I mean, it it, it just it complicates where the demand is compared to where the supply is, and that just you know, and that kind of mismatch that causes you know the, these kinds of problems with regard to sales and and also in terms of pricing. So yeah, there, I think that that has that did play a role probably less so at the moment and going forward, probably even less. Uh, it, it, I mean, remote work is here to stay. I, I, I agree with uh, with uh, Nick that, you know, that's going to continue, but I think it's a kind of a slow moving process. I, I, I'm not, I don't think that's a big part of the story at this point in time. Yeah, that, that's a totally fair correction that it might not be an, an active ingredient uh, in the dynamic that we're seeing today. It just makes me think like if you're a middle-class or lower middle-class uh, family or, or, or home buyer, or, you know, someone looking to buy a home in a city like, you know, Los Angeles, uh, Washington, DC, Philadelphia, there's always that part of town. There's always that part of the Metro where you can say, Oh, well, that's where prices are lower. That's yeah, where I point. can move to. Mm-hmm. And if those pri- if if prices are rising faster in those more affordable places than they are even in the urban cores, then it makes it harder for home buyers and more stressful maybe for home buyers to identify that so-called affordable neighborhood, right? And so that's Although, maybe the part of it that I'm thinking of. Uh, on the other hand, if, if you think that this is all being driven by remote work, I mean, now you can go anywhere you want. Uh, you don't necessarily need to go to the suburban ring. You can go, what you know, I'm I live in Philly. And, you know, we have a very clear urban core. We have a clear suburban ring. We have a clear exurban ring. And you don't have to go too far. You're in rural areas and it's cheap, much cheaper. And if you don't need to, if you're not nailed down to having to go to some specific location or office, you know, that gives you freedom to go to other places and, and lower those housing costs. And, and, that, and I think that is, is starting to happen and, and will continue to happen.
This episode is brought to you by Canva. Here's a writing tip for work. Don't just write. Use Canva Docs. It has Magic Write, a built-in AI text generator powered by OpenAI to help you create almost anything, from meeting agendas to job descriptions, marketing plans, proposals, and more. Canva is here to help you get it done. If you've used AI for work, for writing, for coming up with bullet points for a podcast, a meeting, you know that AI works best when you're specific, when you tell AI exactly what you want and then tell it again and again. Help me do this. Help me talk like this kind of person. The more specific you can be, the more helpful you'll find it is. Generate your draft fast with Canva Docs at canva.com, designed for work. This episode is brought to you by KPMG. The people at KPMG make the difference for their clients, talented teams leveraging the right technology to uncover insights that illuminate opportunity. KPMG teams together with their clients working shoulder to shoulder to help grow and transform their enterprise. Are you ready to make the difference together? Go to visit.kpmg.us backslash transformation to learn more. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibly listed at indeed.com slash plane. Just go to indeed.com slash plane right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. So all this leads to a question, the question of the podcast. Um, I listened to David Leonhardt on The Daily this week after he spoke to you. And David said there that for most young people, they should just about give up on the idea of home ownership for the next few years. H- how do you feel about that assessment? Well, uh, I, I would be patient, uh, but I, I would, I'd be actively looking. I mean, one of the keys to uh, being a good, uh, getting a, a good, a good home, but becoming a homeowner and getting a good deal is really understanding the market, understand the, lo- the location, understand the housing choices that you have. And that takes time. That's not easy. You got to go, you know, got to watch the listings. You got to go take a look. You got to really try to understand what's going on in the place you want to live. And so do that. Uh, you should be doing that. And, you know, who knows? I mean, mortgage rates go up, they go down, they go all around pretty I don't know if you've been watching, but they move pretty darn fast. I mean, it wasn't, but a few weeks ago, we were at an 8% mortgage rate. Now we're at seven. And, you know, I think the best forecast is, you know, it's not going to be below six anytime soon and probably another year or two down the road. But, you know, uh, things happen. You know, there, a window could open. So I'd be prepared. Uh, so I, you know, I'd be looking. I, I you know, I'm, in, I'm older, uh, you know, I'm one of those boomers and, you know, uh, thinking about another second home and I'm, I'm watching, you know, I'm, I have, you know, a market in mind and I'm watching very carefully. Definitely not a time to buy at this point, but you know, I, I understand that market pretty darn well. I know it down to the street. I know it down to the, you know, 
I know I know exactly the homes that I'm looking at. So you you should prepare. I want to help people. I want to give people a tool to understand the degree to which certain markets are amenable to buying versus renting. And one tool that you have and that you've talked about is the price rent ratio. Tell us a little bit about what the price rent ratio is and how home buyers should use it or prospective home buyers or renters should use it. Yeah, I, it's just a rule of thumb. Uh, it's like a um, uh, a measure of uh, valuation. Uh, it's kind of like if you buy stocks, you, you've heard the term price uh, equ- uh, price uh, uh, to equity ratio, uh, the pr- price to earnings ratio. Price to earnings, say. yeah. Uh, price being the price of the stock, earnings being, you know, uh, what the company, the profits of the company that are underlie the value of that stock. If prices get really high relative to earnings, then it's it's highly valued and may not be a good, all else being equal, a good deal. Same with homes. You know, homes. There's a price of the home, and then kind of the the, the rents generated by the home, either explicit rents if it's you know you're renting out the house, or so-called implicit rents because you're kind of you're living there, but you're 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 effectively renting it to yourself. And so, you know, if you look at the price of the home relative to that stream of of rents, it gives you a sense of valuation. Is it is it overvalued? Is it highly uh, undervalued? That kind of thing. But it's only a rule of thumb. And that uh, I would caution people to uh, be very careful with that because it varies a lot by market, you know, uh, for lots of different reasons. The, the 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 price to rent ratio in San Francisco is very very different than the price to rent ratio in let's say, I don't know, Des Moines Iowa or Pittsburgh, you know, Pennsylvania. So you got to be careful using that. I, what I would do is uh, going back to New York Times. Uh, they got a great calculator, uh, in part because I helped build the calculator uh, for them. Uh, and you can plug in all the relevant information that you need. And actually, it's a really good thing to do because you get a real sense of all the variables involved in this rent by decision. You know, you know, there, there's defaults there for you if you don't really know what the answer is to, to the question, how long am I going to live in the home, that kind of thing. But you can go there and you can play with that and you can ex- exactly see the rent that is kind of break even, you know, between buying the home and renting the home. And so that helps you make the decision. I, I think that's a much more useful tool. Yeah, you, you've said that people should lean toward renting unless the rent ratio in the neighborhood, the which is the annual purchase price of a house, divided by the annual cost of renting a similar house is below 18. Is there any brief parsimonious way to explain what's so magical about the number 18? There's nothing magical about it. It's just, a, it's just uh, you know, like in the uh, stock market, kind of the rule of thumb it used to be that, you know, if the, the price earnings ratio was above 15, the market's overvalued. Uh, that's kind of migrated higher for lots of reasons. That's cl- actually close to 18. Same in the housing market. If you go back 10, 15 years ago, Kind of the rule of thumb, looking historically, uh, w- was about a fifteen price to rent ratio. Now it's about eighteen, but it's just a historical regularity. Um, you kind of sort of what pe- uh, 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 how people value the asset as an investment. You know, housing as an asset, and right now the you know uh, based on historical uh, the the um, the behavior that rule of thumb is about eighteen. But again, you know, if I go to San Francisco. It's, it's the rule of thumb is probably closer. I'm making this up, but it could be 25, 30 in, in 
in in Philadelphia, it's actually very low. It's like ten to fifteen, you know, something like that. Well, yeah, and of course, the U.S. is not just one housing market. It's the thousand oh, yeah. housing markets that we call a national housing market when we have to uh, briefly describe what's happening in headlines. And one way to see that is to go metro by metro by looking at the price rent ratio, which I did this morning. So uh, to your point, it's fifty in San Francisco right now. Um, oh, it's fifty. It's fifty. Okay. Uh, okay. It's forty in New York, L.A., and Seattle. It's about thirty in D.C., San Diego, and Portland. It's roughly 20 in Miami, Phoenix, and Chicago. And as for cities under the magic line of 18, which, as you've just said, is not quite a magic line, but a roughly magic line, under the 18, we have Dallas, we have Houston, we have San Antonio, we have El Paso, and then we have a lot of Midwestern cities uh, that have seen uh, their population stagnate or decline. So demand isn't particularly as high in those areas, which might explain why the price rent ratio is a little bit lower. Well, you 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 know you've looked at the data more recently than I. But the one thing I do remember, because I am from Philly, I think the rent price rent ratio in Philly is lower than any other major metropolitan area in the country. So my I'm feeling pretty good about my home in Philly. Just saying. Right. <laughs> why does Texas fare so well in terms of the price rent ratio? Like, have they just done the best job of building? Uh, well, you can build forever. I mean, go. Have you been down to Texas recently? I have not. <laughs> you can, you can, you can build. You can build. There's no, there's no limitations on building. I mean, both in terms of permitting and zoning, uh, less restrictions, but also just physically. I mean, you can just build forever. I mean, the only constraint is going to be increasingly things like water. You know, can I get water to? You know, that's going to be the constraint. But in, you know, places like uh, New York, like New York and San Francisco and Philadelphia and Chicago, you've got real physical constraints, right? I mean, you got a body of water sitting right there, right? And you can't build. Uh, so you're supply, you're physically supply constrained. So very different kind of underlying geographies. And it affects, as you can imagine, not, not if you give it three se- seconds of thought, you know, it has an impact on, you know, these, these uh, valuations. You know, by the sort of price rent ratio of 18, by that metric, you look at some of these cities where the ratio now is, you know, not just twice as high, but three times as high, almost four times as high. Like by that metric, when can we say that it will broadly be a quote unquote good time to buy a house in the country's richest metros? Is the answer five years, 10 years? Never. I mean, Annie Lowry, a great writer, the staff writer at The Atlantic, wrote a piece about how, you know, by certain metrics, um, you have you know, the chief economist at Redfin was saying, you know, you might not have uh, a historically sane housing market in some of the richest American metros until the 2030s, at least. I mean, how, how do you feel about that analysis? Uh, I, 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 that sounds reasonable. I mean, I'd say, look, uh, the financial crisis was almost 15 years ago. It took us 15 years to get into this mess. It's going to take us 15 years to get out. And I, and I, and it's not, you know, I think policy makers have options here. I mean, they, they, they should uh, help address the affordable housing shortage. You know, housing is, we got to live in a home. I mean, that's like, you know, you got to eat, you got to live in a home, you got to have health care. These are basic kind of necessities. So I think it's critical for you know lawmakers to you know do things that would help here, and and and, and they are to some degree. I mean, they, they there's a program called LIHTC, Low Income Housing Tax Credit, to build affordable rental of property, and it works. Uh, and you know it it helps out, and that could be juiced up. Uh, 
here's an idea from Zandy. I don't know if it's unique, but how about light tech for homeownership, you know, to help uh, builders bring, remember we went back to builders aren't building because their, their fixed costs are too high. They're not making enough money. Well, give them a tax credit if they build the right kind of housing in the right kind of place. You know, uh, we want housing for uh, first time home buyers, lower income households in communities where affordability is a real problem. And uh, give those tax get get those give a tax credit to those builders, lower their their costs, get their profit margins up, and they will build. They will build, and we get more we get more housing. And you can the other you know obvious issue here is the zoning exclusionary zoning, real really pernicious problem. The federal government can't do much about that because that's all set at the local level, and the federal government can't do it. But if you set up a, kind of a light tech program, you can give tax credits in a way that. Uh, incent local governments to change their zoning to allow for more, you know, more dense building, that kind of thing, so that we can get more housing and get these pe- get people, you know, the homes that they they deserve. So, I, I, you know, it is it's a daunting, it's daunting, but I wouldn't give up. I think there's things we couldn't do and we should be doing to, you know, address this issue. Yeah, especially on the regulation and permitting side, I'm a huge, huge advocate uh, of of reforming those local laws. Um, so here's here's a question that that might have us double back and reconsider some of what we just said. Um, when I put all this together, uh, the unaffordability of homes, the sort of historic unaffordability of housing today, you know, I would think that there'd be extremely robust evidence that as millennials can't afford to buy houses, as a result, the home ownership rate among millennials and maybe even reflected more broadly would decline. Um, but it's not clear that that's happening. I've seen private surveys that suggest that millennial home ownership rates are a tick below Gen X and boomers adjusted for age, but not catastrophically behind, maybe a couple percentage points behind. And according to the Fed, the national homeownership rate, the share of all adults who own a home, is 66%, which is not an all-time high. It's a few points down from the all-time high, but it's still higher than any year between 1965 and 1997. So how do we square this circle whereby there's a media narrative um, that millennials can't buy homes? And I think maybe more responsibly, we can say there's a narrative that it's unaffordable for young people to buy houses, especially in highly productive uh, high-income areas. But also, the home ownership rate hasn't fallen very much. How do you put that together? Yeah, the well, actually, the homeownership rate hasn't really gone anywhere in the last fifty years, like forty or fifty years. Correct me if I'm wrong. You can go look on Fred, put in homeownership rate, and you know, it goes it's gone up and down. It, I think, the highest it ever got was sixty nine percent, and that was you know in the in the housing craze, you know, before the the bust. The lowest it has has gotten in you know recent times is what sixty three percent something like that and now it's I think it's on the nose sixty six percent two thirds of households own their own home uh, you know I think we it's not it's not rising and and, and I do think if uh, you, the most acute affordability issues have happened very recently with this run up in mortgage rates which really began a little over a year ago so. I suspect that you know uh, that we are going to see that homeownership rate you know start to come down here you know pretty quickly. So it's just recent that we've seen this very severe affordability issue you know crop up because of the high mortgage. The house prices have been there, but now you mix in these high these high mortgage rates, people can't afford the mortgage payment. You get that lock in effect, and that's all been very recent. You know since early 
it's, it's been less than two years, you know, like a year and a half, you know, that guy. By the way, this one point of interest, because uh, it's a pet peeve of mine, the higher inflation and interest rates, in my view, is not related to increased demand for things. I mean, demand picked up coming out of the pandemic, but it's about the pandemic and the Russian war. The pandemic's messed up supply chains and labor markets. And you can see that in the housing market. One reason why we haven't gotten more multifamily supply is because multifamily builders couldn't get appliances, couldn't get building materials. They couldn't find workers. You know, the immigrant uh, workers that work in these projects quit, weren't coming into the country. And the Russian war and oil prices and so forth and so on. That's the reason for the high inflation, high interest rates. And good news is, as those things get into the rearview mirror, and they are, inflation has come back in, and I think interest rates are coming back in as well. So it's not about, you know, I don't, I don't, you know, there's a lot of reasons for the high inflation interest rates. Demand is kind of at the low at the end of the list. It's more about, you know, what the pandemic did to us and what the Russian war in Ukraine did to us. Let's close by talking about the near future or the edge of the present, whatever term is appropriate for helping people try to I like, imagine. I like that. The edge of the present. I mean, that should be a book. Really. Uh, I think yeah. it is a book. Who did I just oh, plagiarize? Um, okay. Duncan Watts. Uh, the sociologist Duncan Watts, I think, coined the term the edge of the present. That's a great, um, great term. I'm yeah. going to use that. Feel, yeah, yeah. Feel, feel free to steal um, from me who stole from Duncan. Um, <laughs> so I would basically want to help people imagine what's coming up for the next few months um, and whether or not there is good news for people, because I, I don't like to you know, leave listeners uh, in, a, in a depressive lurch. So mortgage rates, and you mentioned this a few minutes ago, mortgage rates are falling. We have to say that. And not only that, there's also some evidence that building materials order growth is rising for the first time all year, and that might augur more building. And then third, you mentioned the regulatory side, right? There's permitting that is constricting housing growth. There's there's city-by-city regulations that constrict housing growth. But there's this movement, the YIMBYs, yes, in my backyard, the YIMBYs that are notching some nice wins in California, in Colorado, in Utah, um, I don't think they've necessarily notched wins that have like totally unlocked these markets, especially in places like you know San Francisco and, and SoCal. Um, but they're getting the regulatory wins anyway. Uh, what makes you optimistic that things might get unfrozen and that we might uh, jump up from uh, all-time lows when it comes to uh, um, uh, home sales per capita? Well, I mean, the most obvious uh, is that the economy is strong. People have jobs. Unemployment is low. Wages are rising. And now wait, people's wages, in a, you know, if I look across the uh, kind of the, uh, the entire distribution of workers is rising uh, more quickly than the rate of inflation by, by a good amount at this point. I mean, a lot to catch up to here to do because, uh, you know, inf inflation took off uh, and uh, swamped wage growth and, and people are feeling uncomfortable about that, rightly so. But I think that's changing. Does that dynamics changing? The key to everything is jobs and and making sure that people's incomes continue to rise, and that will ultimately solve lots of problems. I mean, it'll make you know uh, housing much more affordable. And I do think interest rates are you know they're elevated for lots of reasons. They'll come in. Uh, there's no doubt about it. I think I think you should plan on the fixed mortgage rate settling in somewhere between five and a half and six percent in the long run. That's kind of that's kind of where we will will be, and we will get more homes. You know, one of the beauties of the American system is if you can make money at doing something, people do it, and they they get that they get they go at it, you know, pretty aggressively. Uh, they solve prop. We solve problems if you can, you know, make some money. And I think the builders are going to solve these problems. Uh, so, 
but but you know, having said all of that, of course, I am the economist, and I maybe I can't end on a high note. I mean, it's going to take some time. We it took us time to get into this this uh, box. It's going to take us a little bit of time to get out of the box. Mark Sandy, thank you very very much. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Thank you so much for listening. Plain English is hosted by me, Derek Thompson, and produced by Devin Manzi. Some great news for you all. As you probably know, we are returning, have returned back to our normal schedule of two pods a week. So be on the lookout for new episodes every Tuesday and Friday. If you like our podcast, please rate, give us five stars, subscribe wherever you listen, and I'll see you later. This episode is brought to you by 20th Century Studios' Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. As a ruthless king builds his empire at the expense of the remaining human race, a young ape will fight for the future of apes and humans alike. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes, enter the kingdom in IMAX on May 10th and in theaters everywhere. Get tickets now.